Cavalcade Audio Productions presents Star Drifter, the science fiction patio book series written and read by David Collins Rivera. Book Two, Street Candles. Today's installment, Chapter Two. We were at T-minus 91 minutes when I got back. I was out of breath as I stepped through the personnel hatch, having been running. At the intersection at the center of the ship, a young woman I hadn't met yet, with pretty dark brown skin and an inquisitive, slightly bemused look crossed my path in the companionway. She stopped to listen to my rushed, and I realized even then, totally unnecessary introduction and explanations. She wore green, grease-spattered coveralls with a matching brimless cap and a friendly smile. Sherry Linden, she said simply. I held out my hand, but she had grayish lubricant all over hers. Nice to meet you, I said before things got too strange. I, uh, I have to go. Sorry. Okay, she replied, walking aft. See you around. Sticking my head in at the bridge, I said, I'm back, and I have what I need. Carmi looked up from her station, as did all the others. Ira was still messing with cables on the floor. Good. Ira, did you get his comm into the switchboard? Yep, you're all set there, uh... Ejock, I supplied again. Ejock, yeah, sorry, I'm bad with names. The ship network logged your personal device's ping when you came aboard, and I put it into the system. Is that the number you want to use? Yeah, it's fine, I confirmed. I have ox and bone cons installed tied to this wrist comp, which I always keep on or near me. He touched a wristband of his own, not a full comp, just a multi-tool, and a message popped into my field of vision off to the side. A simple head gesture opened it, and there was Ira staring back at me like a fish in a bowl. Testing, one, two, one, two, he said, and I heard him in stereo, both live and in my head through the bone-conducting speaker mics implanted in my upper jaw. They'd come with the retinal implants. Inarguably useful and reliable, they were also kind of tinny-sounding, and I wasn't sure I loved them. I still had to use quality audios for music and vids, and that just seemed redundant and stupid. Loud and clear, I pronounced, and he smiled into my ocular display and closed the connection. Should I check on the passengers? I then asked, looking to Carmi, who nodded in return. I just spoke to their boss man. I don't know what you'd call him. Lead reporter? Anchorman? Whatever. His name is Alan Small. Mr. Small to you and me, right? Right. But yes, they're up now and in the common room. Just about mealtime for them. Aft to the intersection, then starboard. It's marked. You buzz before entering, and you always ask if there's anything more you can get for them before you leave, right? Right. On your way, then. Gunnery can wait a bit. Right. I turned and headed off, feeling like there were smirks being traded behind me, but I didn't mind. 
new guy syndrome was a chronic affliction of the freelancer, and I'd learned to more or less live with it. A stop at the galley seemed to be in order right off, getting some coffee going or whatever. There might also have been set menus or special food restricts to follow, so it was good to get a heads up. The galley had been locked when folks and I visited, but it was open now. My fellow steward was in there already, a stack of frozen meals set up for the warmer. Oh, hi, Rena. How can I help? Hi, uh, what was your name again? I'm sorry. No problem. Ejoc de Santos. I held out my hand, and she took it briefly with a soft grip. Rina Hospitaramita. Just Rina's fine. Um, look, could you go get the dinner order for the passengers? They have a copy of our meal list, so it's only a matter of what they're in the mood for. I just can't deal with people today. See if they want tea or coffee. There's beer and wine, too. They have a soft drink dispenser in the common room. It's only the booze and hot drinks we need to bring in. One of them, the short woman, usually has wine. Okay. I followed Carmi's directions to the common room, which was behind a well-marked pressure hatch. I remembered to hit the buzzer. A moment later came a muffled, Come. The common room was a standard type of extended cabin aboard smaller commercial vessels and generally the sole domain of waking passengers. They were of all shapes and sizes, depending on the ships. This one was basically just a wide, furnished corridor upon which all the passenger cabins opened. It had a central table and chairs with a large tri-D overhead, a folding multi-game on one wall, and some resistance-based workout apparatus along the other. There were also several comfortable-looking chairs and a sofa arranged in a semicircle on the far end. These faced a display-painted wall, currently showing some silly game show streaming from Oasis. A lanky, muscular woman in beige work pants, black tank top, and out-of-fashion green hair slumped on the couch in a bored manner. She didn't look up when I came in. A big fellow, wide of girth, though not particularly fat, sporting black hair and a crew cut and arms full of subdued glow-tos, was at the drink machine, filling a cup. He cocked an eye at me, but seemed to lose interest just as fast. The others were seated at the table, and appeared to have been in the middle of something. The air above had the telltale glow of a fading Tri-D image, and there were scattered hard copies of what I assumed to be work-related papers all over. The short woman Rena had mentioned was collecting all these up in a perfunctory manner, while a tall, broad-shouldered fellow stood up as I entered. He had short blonde hair, tousled at the moment, and classic Vidstar good looks, complete with piercing blue eyes and a spade jaw so wide you could have dug a trench with it. His handsome aspect and charisma were hardly diminished at all by the fuzzy checkered robe and matching slippers he wore. These were testament to a late wake-up, likely following a late night. For a moment, I imagined this guy, dressed in a tailored suit, coif massage to perfection, staring out from a vid display, willfully compelling me to believe his every word, whether it be the tragic details of some far-off natural disaster or the touching sweetness of a local human interest story. Alan Small, no doubt. Well, hello there. You're new, he said easily. Newer than new, I replied to his friendly manner while stepping in. My name is Ejoc de Santos. I'll be on hand for the remainder of the cruise to help you with anything you need. We're very near launch, but we're also near dinner time. 
The former we have no say in, station dictates and all, but the latter offers a choice. I'm here to take your meal orders. De Santos? Is that Spanish? He returned indirectly. Yes, it is. Well, Hispanic anyway, something called Puerto Rican. Terra's a long way off for my family, I'm afraid. And Ejok? That's unusual. My mom was an orbital traffic controller. Still is, actually. It's an acronym in that profession. Ejection on cue, put in a nondescript fellow at the table. He was average in height and had short, dark, receding hair. Vector timing stuff. Hap Larendell, Small said with a wave in the man's direction. Field media tech. Backup reporter, too. Isn't that right, Hap? It sure is, Al. There was an odd lull in the banter then, wherein Small and I smiled at each other rather idiotically, as if reaching or waiting for something. So, I said at last and let it hang with a gesture. Ah, yes, our orders. Give us a moment. Of course. In the meantime, can I get you folks something to drink from the galley? It was two coffees, a beer, and one red wine for the short lady, just as Rena had predicted. Rena, as it turned out, had hardly moved in the time I was gone. She'd went ahead and set out the wine, though, and had the coffee going. I gave Small and his people a few minutes, then returned with the drinks, took their orders, and headed back to the kitchen. We put their meals in the warmer, along with the crew's choices, which was something everyone submitted long in advance. I'd filled out such a form in folks' office myself. The options were far from unlimited, but better than some cruises on much bigger ships that I'd worked. If you'll deal with the passengers tonight, I'll take care of the crew, she said to me, which was an easy thing to agree to since they were all strangers to me just yet. Bridge and engineering call when they're ready to eat, but Dell and Candy get theirs right off. You and I will eat whenever, she added. I'm not very hungry, actually. Attention, everyone, came Carmi's calm, obviously practiced voice just then over the shipwide PA. Five minutes until launch. It should be a slow, smooth egress, but all passengers and crew are to take hold when advised to do so. I repeat, we are at five minutes. I loaded up a wheeled cart with the passengers' heated meals and was heading back to the common room when the take-hold order came. There were railings along all the companionways, so I was okay, but slow, smooth egress notwithstanding, the ship started vibrating strongly as it disengaged from the berth's hydraulic guide arms, which ran along Griselda's sides on little wheels that trundled and rumbled inside the ship like thunder. I wasn't fast enough to catch one of the meals as it bounced maniacally off the edge of the cart. Sliced something or other in brown gravy with a mushy starch on the side and tiny red vegetable thingies went splat on the deck and scattered all over. A second later, all was quiet again. And we're away, Carmi announced as I swore under my breath. And take hold. Not so bad, folks, right? We are on schedule, T-44.5 hours until star jump, including our acceleration period. Approximately eight days subjective time in transit, then about nine days inbound travel and deceleration on the other end. Be advised, therefore, that if you have any business left with Oasis, you have just under two days to complete it by calm. I think I speak for the entire crew, though, when I say good riddance. So long, Ben. We'll miss you. Next stop, Barlow. I thought I should deliver what I had while it was hot, so I did, and made an excuse to the big guy whose meal I'd dumped before running off to make him another. I was rusty at this and no mistake. Luckily, there was another meal in the freezer like the one I'd dropped. 
Rena was out delivering, so I was spared the indignity of explaining it. I cleaned up the mess with some rags and then delivered the guy's meal a little late. If he minded, he didn't show it. If he acknowledged my status as a human being, he didn't show that either. Very sad about your crewmate, Small commented later as I was bussing the table. Some of his group had drifted off to their cabins by now, though a couple of them had dropped the game table to play some cutthroat smackball. Yeah, I never knew him, but the others are in mourning. Rough place, Oasis. Can't say I'm sorry to be leaving. Seen a lot of stations, have you? Well, I grew up on one. Been to quite a few more over the years. They can have very different personalities. Bollico 4, for instance, over in corporate space is like a resort, while Sheerholm here in the Alliance is a war zone, or at least it was when I was there. I'd have put Oasis somewhere in the middle until this gunfight thing. Like I said, it's good to be gone. He nodded and sat down on one of the plush chairs. I understand that Barlow has a space station. Just a high dock from what I've been told. Should be quiet, hopefully. Hopefully, he echoed with gravity. Nobody wanted anything else, or maybe not badly enough to risk having it dropped on the deck, so after a final table wiped down, I took up the meal detritus and made my exit. I was in the middle of my own steak roll and rice, standing and eating in the galley when Sherry called for engineering's meal delivery. Rena wasn't back yet, so I warmed up their archive choices, including tea for Ben Rogenston and his assistant, then I loaded up the cart. I took the time to review the floor map of the ship so I wouldn't get lost in what was essentially just a big cross shape of companionways, towards the intersection and then straight aft until I couldn't go further. Simple. Except that the stated entry to the engine room turned out to be closed off with a big steel plate where a hatch should have been. Next to it, in block letters, was a sign that said, Old Engine Room Entrance. Use Other Door. I read Candy's labels along the wall carefully, walking back the way I'd come until I found one marked, sure enough, New Engine Room Entrance. Easily eight meters away from the original one, it was a real pressure hatch. I could only assume they had taken the door and its frame and moved them forward for some reason. It was locked, but my key stick opened it okay, and it dumped into a side access corridor that ran back to the ship's engines and support machinery. I'd spent a long time training for backup engineering duties aboard ship, and even had several cruises where it had been my primary job. This doorway thing seemed pointlessly convoluted. It wasn't until I entered engineering proper that I saw the enormous overhaul it had had at some point. Nothing in the financial snooping I'd done earlier that day had mentioned engine upgrades, but I hadn't had access to the AIN transportation record for Griselda, which is where the details of its actual, as opposed to original, power and engine specs would have been deposited. There had been a complete replacement and upgrade of the main drives at some point, with a system the like of which I'd never seen or even studied. It didn't look new or especially advanced, but it was big, solid, and, at first glance, quite efficient. There was an ultra-low hum in the air that could be distinctly felt but not heard, and a rhythmic thump-thump from an atmosphere processor on the far side of this mass of unfamiliar machinery. Ben Rogenston caught my wondering and wandering gaze from his position under what appeared to be an oversized fuel pump. Sherry was up top, her legs and butt in the air as she worked noisily on some mechanical aspect of the machine on the other side. The bearded man watched me for a bit, but didn't speak. This is a military-grade interflow system, am I right? 
I finally asked him, waving at the machinery and mass. No, he responded with a shake of his head, ducking under the pump. Sherry kept working without interruption. Is Interflow premix and the exhaust compression system from Holbiet, Grantagenet class missile boat in His Imperial Majesty's Grand Flotilla from 181st Detachment of Angel Fleet Escort under Count Taid. Deep action and ship service and angels, but is make impression that day. Four enemy kills, including late model man the war. Is Imperial gunboat record unbroken still? Naturally, I had nothing to say to that. You asked, Sherry put in with a smile, climbing down now. Your old berth? I put to him. Ja, he confirmed with a nod. Master engineer, three years. Holbiet was to be scrapped then. Bin Ragenston too, Angel Fleet have rules about age. Get option for a piece of Hulk as pension. Griselda come two months later, need overhaul. Has uh, reaction sumps, bleeding plasma, bad design. Have since been banned in all territories. Shintao Bell interchange stacks, Sherry pronounced as she raided the cart. Real garbage. Before my time here, but I looked them up. Bellcorp pulled a political scam and agreed to drop the basic technology completely in exchange for immunity from a general recall. It bankrupted a lot of their customers, and that almost included Griselda. No recall, no free replacement after all. So these engines were his buy-in for Griselda. Cashless deal. Not bad for a working grunt, she added, obvious admiration in her voice. The chief engineer just humphed, but there were happy smiles in his black, shrouded eyes. He poured his tea from the carafe and just watched me. Have researched your record after interrogation, he stated at last. Interview, Sherry corrected absently through a mouthful of some aromatic gumbo-looking concoction. What is difference, he demanded with mock borderline irritation. We ask questions, he answers. Prisoners are interrogated, she replied simply. This seemed like something akin to normal banter for these two, and it made me grin. It was the closest thing to comfortable I'd seen in anybody since I'd boarded, what with Bennett Ham's untimely demise. It spoke of a close friendship between them, really a father-daughter-like relationship, and at least a degree of isolation from the rest of the crew. Ben Roggenston waved away what he considered to be a pointlessly fine distinction and continued. You were attacked with atomic weapons in battle with pirates, ja? Um, yeah, we were. It was a close thing. Scared the living crap out of me, literally. Sherry barked a laugh at that, but Ben Roggenston just nodded sagely. Well, I have to say, I stated after an uncomfortable pause, wherein the older man continued to study me carefully, this is without a doubt the most impressive setup I've ever seen. Looks like it was from a much bigger vessel. Holbiet was four times Griselda mass with full ordnance load. Wow. Then how fast are we now? He shrugged. Fast? Fast, Sherry repeated, beaming pride. But she's a fuel hog if we push it. If we keep to moderate accelerations, though, she's actually what I'd call super efficient on high-grade fuel. These engines save us money or time, depending on what we're short of. Nice options to have, believe me. Oh, I do, I said with another sweeping look around. I have to get back to work, but could I come down here for a proper tour sometime? Yeah, Ben Roggenston answered simply, and by the look in his eyes, 
it was the right question to ask. I wasn't sure if I had to wait for them to be done in order to collect the dishes, but they said no, so I took my leave. Rena had come and gone to the galley in my absence because the other cart was missing and she'd ticked the bridge crew's listed meal choices off for the day. That meant I was free to start cleaning the grunge from in there, which no one else seemed to care about, but it bothered me to no end. I wandered up and down the companionways until I found a real maintenance closet and got some cleaning supplies. I was flat on my back with a scrub cloth worrying grime off the underside of a counter when Rena returned. She stared for a moment as if she had an opinion about this, but didn't comment on it. Breakfast is at 0900 for the passengers, she said at length. I'll get them in the morning if you want. No, I don't mind. What about the crew? We deliver to Dell and Candy at the same time as passengers. Bridge and engineering will call for it, just like tonight. Thanks, by the way, for taking care of Gasto and Sherry. Launch is at 1300 and works the same way. We have a short list of other duties tomorrow morning as well. Companionway swept and mopped. Passenger areas cleaned and straightened up. Crew cabins get cleaned by the individual crew members themselves. We're big on that little piece of privacy here. Most days Ben and I are finished with steward duties. We're finished by lunchtime. She threatened to start crying again, so I said okay and told her quickly, in reference to what I was doing at the moment, that I just wanted to make a good impression on my first day and that it would be a favor to me if she let me take care of it myself. She said she didn't mind. I don't know if that was completely true, but she obviously didn't want to help, and I didn't want her to either if she was this weepy, so it worked out fine. She said good shift, and then I was alone. It occurred to me at this point that I didn't know where my cabin was. I had a hunch that I just needed to look for the one marked B ham, but a check-in with Carmi about it seemed appropriate. And as it turned out, I did, and it was. I took a short break after that to use the fresher, one of two common bathrooms on board, one for crew, one for passengers, then ran below to my locker to rummage for my kit. Candy was down there still, looking busy, and she said hi with a wave. I then found Ham's old cabin. They had at least cleaned it out, though that wasn't hard, considering it was only slightly larger than gunnery. Just enough room for a fold-down bed, fold-down desktop, shallow closet with folding door, and narrow floor drawer with a folding top. Perfect for the man with a folding lifestyle. It needed a scrubbing too, but I was still in the middle of Ben Ham's last mess. Back at the galley, I spent the next two hours getting it up to my standards, then headed to the closet that held gunnery. The diagnostic had finished running a long time before, and I was both chagrined and excited about the results. On the one hand, Gunnery, as an independent station, couldn't actually interface with the missile launch control system, while the lantern guns, that is to say fire suppression and kinetic interposal, could be monitored and activated, but not aimed from there. Radar and passive sensors could be accessed, but there was no way to run real-time Gunnery-specific analyses on the information they provided. Well, on the other hand, I finally learned about Griselda's special ordnance. In addition to 16 generic, vacuum-only, anti-ship rockets with what amounted to oversized firecrackers for warheads, definitely deadly if used properly, but nothing fantastic, there were eight Semple Industries Stiletto aerospace flight missiles, complete with anti-armor tips and Schedule B warheads. 
A direct hit with just one of those babies, with a nice bit of momentum behind it, could put even a fleet destroyer out of action. Yet they were technically just civilian-class weapons for a merchander's self-protection. Better yet, they were ultra-streamlined for in-atmosphere flight and had smart comps aboard that could, for instance, guide them up into low orbit and then down again to targets on the other side of the planet's diameter. True ICBM emulation. These things were only legal because they weren't WMD compatible, but that wouldn't be an issue with good aim. They'd come with a whole suite of forms, liability waivers, and pre-investigative acknowledgments, which was a sure sign of their efficacy should they ever be used. I almost wanted to pick a fight just to try one out. The original defense software package was easily called up, and it ran fine on the grainy central touchscreen of the system, but it was a small display and hard to use. I switched the feed to my retinals just to check it out, but that user experience was flat out terrible. The interface was stupid about gesture input and surprisingly slow drawing screen changes to my corneas. Clearly, I would need another way to access systems while sitting at my station. The control program itself, though, turned out to be a really simple thing I could use directly off my wrist comp through its built-in holo display. I tested it like this, dialing directly into Griselda's network, and I had access to all the same gunnery systems as on the touchscreen. So as a backup tool, that might be okay. But I figured a real gunnery station should be capable of more than a simple point-and-shoot game. I spent most of the next hour listing this cobbled-together system's deficiencies, contrasted with what I thought I could do about them. The problem side was longer than the solution side, but nothing seemed undoable. Next, I installed all my standard tools and simulator applications, as well as a personal database of practice scenarios. I literally had thousands of these things made by commercial outfits and hacker gunner types alike. As a matter of course, or just dumb habit, I sucked up every scenario I came across, caching them all for later study. Most were trash, of course, but I kept some around solely for entertainment value. For instance, I had a whole directory of absurd scenarios written by this one dilettante gunner software engineer way over in Nippon system. The guy owned a tiny boat he'd built from a kit and used it for these laughable live fire tests of his programs, even though the thing couldn't even carry active guns because of legal restrictions. I had mountains of garbage like this. And here I was, once again, installing it all on yet another new system. One of these days, I vowed to myself, I'd definitely do a purge. Well, after this chore was completed, I used Chip's comm to get into Oasis data nets while there was still no noticeable time lag. Then, I logged onto my union's database and started downloading even more stuff. In short order, I had what I figured I'd need to fix things, including an autocoder that I knew to be kind to those of us with limited programming skills. Bennett Ham might have done his best with all that cross-coding, which was no small task and, quite truthfully, nothing I could have done myself. But he never pulled this homemade station together. To me, that meant the ship had been vulnerable on his watch. Vulnerable, yet never threatened. So, despite tragedy and despite the ship's financial challenges, Griselda had good luck where it mattered the most. That was the best defense any ship could hope for but only if it held.
You have been listening to Street Candles, written and read by David Collins Rivera. You can check out my site at cavalcadeaudio.com or drop me an email at lostinbronx at gmail.com. That's L-O-S-T-N-B-R-O-N-X at gmail. The Star Drifter theme is a piece called i by Trunks and can be found on soundcloud.com. The Street Candles theme is called Undercover by Karsten Holy Moly and can be found on dig.ccmixter.org. This production is otherwise copyright 2013 by David Collins Rivera and is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 3.0 license. Feel free to use it for any purpose, even commercial, and I encourage you to do so. Street Candles is a work of fiction and is not based upon nor meant to portray any person living or dead or any particular place or situation. Thank you for listening. Take care.